0: Welcome to episode 36 of the Neural Network. Took a week off, but now we're back. Today, we're diving deep into the mysterious and some may even say enigmatic world of sleep. For centuries, sleep has been a subject of fascination to scientists, philosophers, and just generally sleepy people. There's a lot of mystery and a number of scientific questions that have all come out from it. It's something that we all experience, but there's so much that we still don't fully understand. So, if you're interested in sleep, and what happens in your brain when you're sleeping, stay tuned. All right. Have you ever had one of those nights where you like drift off to sleep and then suddenly you're jolted awake by a sudden noise? Maybe it's like a a car horn or maybe it's your dog barking or or maybe it's even something as soft as like a wind chime or something like that or or your phone getting a a late night message. Although for many people, most of the time, those notifications don't wake them up. Either way, it's a fleeting moment. But in that brief sort of intersection between sleep and wakefulness, have you ever kind of wondered what's actually happening in our brain? Well, there was a, a recent study in Nature Neuroscience that take a looks took a look at some of the different things that are going on within the brain and the ability of the brain itself to actually respond to stimuli during sleep. Are we actually cognitively processing things during sleep? It's always been something that's kind of interesting in my mind. I've always had the question of you know if you're if you have someone that's asleep or you if you're studying an animal model or something like that and you have an animal model that's sleeping. Whenever you give a stimuli as far as like a verbal stimuli, you can still see the parts of the brain light up that are responsible for encoding sounds and encoding speech. And it's interesting because actually when we're we're sticking uh, probes into the brain stem particularly in in order to actually uh, probe the ventral respiratory column as it's called to, to study breathing, one of the ways that we can tell where we are in the brain as we're advancing the probe is that located laterally or, or to the, the side of the ventral respiratory column is an area of the cochlear nucleus. And this is a, a subset of neurons within the brain that's actually responsive to uh, different sounds. And so it comes straight from basically the, the ear, the inner ear, transduces a signal. And then those are some of the neurons that play, play a role in that. And so when you're advancing the probe, you can actually clap. As you're advancing the probe, and if you start to see neurons responding to the clap, then you know that you're too far lateral and you need to move the probe more towards the middle. And so what's always been somewhat fascinating to me, and a question that I've always had, is that if indeed the neurons that are responsive to sound are still active during sleep, and they're responding similar in a way that they would during wakefulness, then theoretically the rest of the brain circuitry is also still responding in a similar way that it is when it's sleep. Maybe not, it may not have the, the same behavioral responses, right? You might say, you might tell someone that's sleeping something very stressful and it's not like you're going to get a huge spike in heart rate or sweating or anything like that. But, But as far as what is actually being processed subconsciously, Uh, theoretically, a lot of those pathways are still active during sleep. And I've always sort of long had this question of whether or not, you know, you play audiobooks during sleep. What is the odds that uh, you're actually going to remember some of that stuff when you wake up? And there's been some limited evidence that's been shown that, you know, perhaps uh, people that play audiobooks while you're sleeping might have some sort of unconscious cognitive perception of those books. And then, when a sort of a cue comes up later on in life, then uh, they may possess some knowledge that they didn't actually necessarily consciously um, learn, but rather was unconsciously given to them during sleep. And so, you know, it's, it, that's often debated, and you're going to find just as much evidence for and against that same theory. And a lot of it probably has to do with a lot of the the stimuli in which it's given in the context of the information and the trials. It's, it's a very hard thing to study, but it is a fascinating question. Uh, and certainly, you know, if you are uh, just sleeping, there's no reason why you couldn't put on, let's say, an audiobook and take in that information. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think there could be evidence one way or another. I don't necessarily have an answer, and I don't think anybody has an answer as of right now. But uh, anyways, the 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 study that was interesting that came out in Nature Neuroscience uh, in actually a couple days ago, October twelfth, I guess like twelve days ago from the or no uh, eleven days ago from the time that this uh, episode is being published. But there was a study called Behavioral and Brain Responses to Verbal Stimuli Revealed Transient Periods of Cognitive Integration of the External World During Sleep. I'm not even going to pretend like I can pronounce this right, and I apologize to the authors, but the first author is Bazak Turker. Um, I for sure said that wrong because it has an umlaut uh, and uh, a different letter that I am unfamiliar with with the English language, and the senior author was Delphine Adwet, uh, or Adui. It's from uh, let's see, Sorbonne University uh, Institute of. Oh, it's in uh, the Paris Brain Institute. So a very highly regarded uh, in- neuroscience institute over there in Paris. And so it was an interesting study, and it was quite, it was asking a similar question to sort of this problem that I was posing of: Does the brain actually? process information while you're sleeping but they went one step further to ask can you get a behavioral response from someone that's sleeping when you present them with in this case verbal stimuli and so it was kind of an interesting little study paradigm that they did and some of the results were pretty fascinating and and really the the premise behind what they were studying is this phenomenon known as uh, oh what is it called it's sleep disconnection i believe it's called Yes, sleep disconnection. Probably should have had that ready. But anyways, there's the, there's a dogma known as sleep disconnection, which suggests that while we're asleep, we're largely unresponsive to the world around us. And, you know, I think lately, it's been sort of interesting, especially with some of those gliolymph systems suggesting that sleep is more of an active process than it is a passive process. Uh, they're starting to become some light into those ideas of challenging that dogma, that the brain necessarily just shuts down during sleep, you know even with the the glial lymph system I think I've reviewed on here before uh, you know we know that during sleep one of the things that the brain does is the glial cells themselves actually sort of flush some of that cerebral spinal fluid uh, that starts to accumulate within the brain over time and so it really just sort of like actively flushes a lot of the uh, the the metabolic byproducts that have been built up throughout the brain throughout the day, and it actually kind of flushes them around the outside of the blood vessel. So, it doesn't actually necessarily flush the cerebrospinal fluid out, but more creates this active flow of metabolites to actually remove them from the brain uh, during sleep. And so, we know that in times of sleep deprivation that you don't get these sort of flushing activities that are occurring and many of those metabolites start to build up within the brain over time and that's what has been postulated to account for many of the sleep or insomnia-related pathologies that can come along uh, with that, whether it be cognitive dysfunction or chronic inflammation, which can then secondarily lead to um, either cognitive dysfunction or, or different neuropathies. But either way, at the end of the day, the, the point is, is that what we're starting to find is that sleep itself is, you know, behaviorally sort of a, a shutdown type of network. We can kind of uh, get rid of the world around us for a little bit and have somewhat of a disconnection. But, but the actual neurophysiological processes that are going on during sleep are certainly not shut down. They're actually a lot of them are uniquely turned on during sleep. And so it's this very active process that uh, we can't just completely ignore, Okay, so how is sleep actually structured then? Because that's kind of important because the level of uh, brain activity and the level of the ability to respond to things might change as we go through different stages of sleep because sleep isn't just an on-off type of thing. It's a very uh, you go through certain cycles throughout the night, and so the when you, when you fall asleep, you essentially you first go through a period of your lightest sleep, uh, sometimes called N1, and it's a, a sleep stage one, and it's a, a fleeting. It's basically when you're. Um, you're sort of right on that cusp of drifting off. And so you're sort of there, but you're not there. You have your muscles are really relaxed. Your heartbeat starts to slow and you can be very easily awakened. So it's it's sort of this very light level of sleep when you're just barely starting to sleep. And then from there, you transition to N2 or your sleep stage 2 now your sleep starts to deepen this is uh where we actually spend a significant portion of the night uh during this time your your body temperature drops and so this is why sometimes they say that sleeping in a cool environment can sort of uh help to promote that deeper sleep or getting into that deeper sleep faster uh and our brain waves start to show sporadic bursts of this activity that's called sleep spindles which are very characteristic as these like lines on a eeg when you're recording someone's sleep but the The idea behind the sleep spindles, I think there's still some debate as to what the the function of them actually is. But I think one of the known or not known, but one of the the ongoing thoughts is that it's a protective mechanism that somewhat shields our sleeping minds basically from being jolted awake from some sort of stimuli. From there, then we enter the the most reg- restorative phase of sleep or the deep phase or the N three or stage three, uh, sleep, or sometimes it's called slow wave sleep here. Our brain waves actually slow down dramatically and they start to produce what we would call Delta waves of activity. Uh, and this is a time of very deep restful sleep. And this is also the time when your body starts to repair and uh, a lot of the tissue regrowth and, uh, bone building and, and muscle, um, hypertrophy and things and strengthening of the immune system starts to happen. Uh, and so this is also the period of time when, you know, good luck waking someone up from from stage three sleep. But at the same time, though, when you do get woken up from this stage of sleep, that's when suddenly you, you're, you feel like you're disoriented. You have no idea where you're at. It's like you've just stepped into a new dimension, basically. And then from there, uh, you go into what's called REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep, which is where a lot of, which is where all of your, your dreaming comes from. Uh, it's kind of creepy when you see someone's eyes during REM sleep, because uh, it's called rapid eye movement for a reason. So the eyes sort of dart back and forth. And then, um, one of the things with, you know, for us, which is interesting, you know, cause we study breathing is that your breathing becomes very irregular during REM sleep. And sometimes you get these apneas that occur and and sort of this very irregular breathing pattern um, but what's what's also interesting about REM sleep is that you have uh, your limbs become temporarily paralyzed. So you go into this sleep state paralysis. Um, and it, it's sometimes sort of the behavioral thought of the reason why the sleep paralysis is there is to prevent you from acting out your dreams. Uh, so that way, even though you're dreaming, you don't have the ability to actually act out the dreamings. Um, because that could be bad if you're dreaming of running and you're starting to run, right? Um, and this is also, you know, kind of um, uh, an aside from when we were studying the goats, we were studying uh, sleep in, in some of the goats during either different drug trials or during different gas exposures. And uh, one of we had EEGs on the goats in order to measure the brain activity to determine when they were in different sleep states. And then we also had uh, EMGs on the eyes to see the eye movement so that we could determine uh, whether or not, or EOGs, what they're called, uh, electrooculography. And it's a way that you can measure the eye movement in order to tell in conjunction with those EEG monitors, which whether or not they're in uh, REM sleep. But GOATS oftentimes will sleep standing up. And so one of the things is is when they go to sleep, um, if they start to sleep standing up, when they go into those deeper phases of sleep and go into REM sleep, they'll all of a sudden lose their limb movement. And so they would just fall over. And so we couldn't, for those times, we couldn't really get a whole lot of REM sleep because every time they went into REM, they would fall over and then wake up. So and also get quite startled. So you have a a goat quite startled in the middle of night with an EEG helmet on um, that is suddenly falling over. So you can imagine it was a little bit of chaos. But anyways, those are sort of just like the basic levels of sleep. Okay, so these are the stages of sleep. And like I said before, Uh, What's kind of interesting is that some of the previous research has shown that even in the depths of sleep, even in the deep sleeps, our brains can still process simple sensory inputs, whether it be, you know, like a dog barking in the distance that can be picked up. Like I said, you can clap when uh, even in an anesthetized state or in a deep sleep state uh, to get activation of those neurons Uh, and even uh, some sensory stimuli such as smells like uh, brewing coffee or something like that can uh, be somewhat seamlessly weaved into our dreams suggesting that you can incorporate some of these sensory informations into the dream but it's where things kind of get interesting beyond just the sensory process the question is you know to what extent can our sleeping brains actually engage in cognitive tasks can we like for instance differentiate between words and non-words and this is a, a classical paradigm in behavioral psychology as well as uh, behavioral neuroscience called a lexical, decision task. And so you can give uh, people words, you can say like pizza, or you can say like and you have no idea what the word is, because it's not a real word. And then you can have people respond to either the real world or the real word versus the non real world. And so uh, that's basically the idea is can we then differentiate between these two and then can we make decisions or even respond to commands. And so This distinction between basic sensory processing and higher order of cognitive tasks sets the stage for the research paper that we are going to explore. All right, so now that the foundation is set, let's dive into the the heart of the paper, today's discussion, uh, the study that challenges the understanding of sleep and cognitive processing. So like I said, it was done by a, a talented team of neuroscientists at an esteemed Neuroscience Institute. Uh, The patients that they had were humans, and the participant tool was was kind of diverse. It had 49 individuals for the study, which for this type of study is actually pretty good. Uh, And what's particularly intriguing is that they included 27 individuals with narcolepsy. So for any of you unfamiliar, narcolepsy is a neurological disorder that's characterized by excessive daytime sleepiness and frequent unexpected bouts of sleep. And so these people will just be uh, doing anything and then just suddenly fall asleep. And so it can be sort of dangerous, of course, because they can be driving, fall asleep in the middle of class, fall asleep. They can be doing anything and just instantly fall asleep. And so this isn't like when you eat a large meal for lunch and you're trying to stay awake at your desk and you're just like fighting the urge to fall asleep, th- this is sort of out of their hands. They will just, bam, instantly fall asleep. It could be walking down the middle of a hallway and fall over, fall asleep. So uh, in, including this group then was actually kind of a, an interesting and a, a brilliant strategic choice because the narcolepsy patients or narcoleptics, as they're called, have a unique sleep pattern uh, and they have very frequent occurrences of lucid dreams. And so lucid dreams are sort of where you have autonomous control over your dreams. And so uh, there's, there's many different strategies to try to get you people to do lucid dreams if they want to. Uh, others just say that it happens somewhat randomly. But lucid dreams are an interesting phenomenon in which you're actually in your dream and you can actually control your body. It's like you're in the Matrix, right? You can control your body, you control your actions, and you're sort of interacting with this dream world. Um, you know, and there's certain things that you can do to. Um, well, you're in a lucid dreaming type of state. Like I said, you can totally interact with it, just like you're in a VR simulation. But um, certain things aren't able to be processed. So like you can look at the clock and numbers won't show up. And so like uh, there's just sort of a, a known thing for some reason, like numbers don't show up on clocks. And there's other things that are somewhat um, irrelevant as far as your ability to read certain things. And so that's one of the, the ways that, if you are aware that you're lucid dreaming, because the thing about lucid dreams is like you you know that you're uh, interacting with this world, but you, in fact, don't necessarily know that you're dreaming, right? To you, it's just sort of real. Uh, it's very kind of trippy. But um, essentially, the the idea is that there are some individuals that are able to embody the fact that they are lucid dreaming and they're interacting with the dream world. And then they can test for the fact that they're in the dream world by looking at certain things Um, and so the idea here is that you actually take some of your memories with you into this dream world or this simulation so why why is this important and why did they include the narcoleptics Uh, like I said the sleep architecture often deviates from the norm Uh, they rapidly enter REM sleep and and they have frequent awakenings. And so this makes them um, an invaluable group for studying the sleep nuances, because oftentimes getting REM sleep is somewhat difficult. So now if you can have uh, individuals that just fall asleep instantly, and they rapidly go into REM sleep, you can get REM sleep. And you can also get people with a lot of sleep during a clinical sleep study, which is very, very important. Okay. So the the core of the study revolved around, like I said, lexical decision tasks. So in other words, participants were were presented with an auditory stimuli, which were either real words or made up words. And then their task was to respond with specific facial expressions. So give either a frown for pseudo words or a smile for real words. So if, if a real word was said, they would smile. If a fake word was said, then they would frown again while they are sleeping is the key uh is is what they were looking for but the when they're doing the trial the words were given at specific intervals of time and regardless of whether the person is awake or asleep they would then have the patients or the the people the participants respond either way so regardless of whether or not you're awake or whether you're asleep. You're gonna get the words respond as you will, and then afterwards they sorted out the data to see what the response rate was for sleeping individuals versus that of the same individuals when they were awake. And obviously the response rate is a lot higher when they're awake, but uh, the you know, the interesting thing is that they did get responses in both sleep and awake states. So you may be wondering then why the the lexical decision task it's Ingeniously simple, but it's uh, as far as like behavioral psychology goes, it's pretty profoundly revealing. So it requires participants not just to hear the stimuli, like I said, but they actually have to to respond. And so, uh, to ensure the accuracy of the different um, tests, the participants were equipped with standard polysomnog- polysomnographic equipment. Uh, It's a way to have like EEGs, for example, to capture brainway activity. You can capture eye movements. They also have EMGs to account for muscle tension. And so they can measure the different muscles that uh, allow you to frown and allow you to smile. So that was one of the ways that you can uh, assess the activity of these muscles without having to be in the room itself. And so you can just look at the EMG activation and see whether or not it's activating a frown or activating a smile because it uses two different muscles. So it's basically like having a, a window, if you will, into the sleeping brain and allows researchers for these people individually uh, to pinpoint the exact stage of sleep that they're in. Uh, like I said, they also had facial electromyography or EMG, uh, which is a way to measure muscle activity. So with that stage sort of set, then participants were allowed to drift off into sleep, and then throughout their slumber, they were intermittently presented with the auditory stimuli, all while recording brain activity and muscle activity to and eye activity as well. So the study kind of sleeplessly blended the worlds of sleep science and cognitive neuroscience, which was quite interesting, because normally you don't give lexical decision-making tasks to sleeping individuals, uh, but they did, in the It's kind of cool. So what did they actually find after what I imagine is to be many hours and hours of recording, certainly meticulous observations that I hope was done by a graduate student, as I often had to do meticulous observations during sleep studies. uh, And so I know how painful those can be at times. As well as uh, interesting that the the data analysis must have been kind of a nightmare because sorting sleep state data is quite a pain in the butt. Uh, And so I I, uh, commend the authors for doing this type of study because I know the pain that goes into this data first in hand. So what did they find? The study revealed that the participants, both with the narcolepsy and the healthy patients or healthy volunteers, I guess, participants, were actually capable of accurately responding to the behavioral task. So they could actually have accurate behavioral responses across most of the sleep stages. And it wasn't just a random twitch or reflexes. They were actually deliberate responses to the auditory stimuli. So imagine like you're in the depths of sleep, your brain not only hears a word, but you can actually understand it, process it and command a specific facial muscle to counteract and respond. So yes, even if you uh, say something that is disgruntling to that of your significant other, even while they are in the depths of sleep, they may still be able to give you a nasty look. So that's wonderful. But it's also kind of an interesting testament to the incredible capabilities that uh, many of our sleeping minds actually have. And like I said, I do think that we have an untapped potential by being able to modulate the activity or the information that's coming into our brains and the ability for us to respond. Uh, during sleep. So I think that that was pretty cool. Now, when you actually compare the the two groups of the narcoleptics to the, the healthy population or the healthy um, participants, a, a kind of a striking pattern emerged throughout the data. So what the, what the authors found is that the participants with narcolepsy consistently showed higher response rates during the stimulation periods across all sleep stages. So it suggests that their somewhat unique sleep architecture, which is, again, characterized by rapid entries into REM sleep and frequently, frequent wakings, awakenings, might actually enhance their responsiveness to external stimuli, which is kind of interesting. And I almost wonder, like, how much of it is the fact that they spend more time sleeping, um, I guess, or they go, they, they have more exposure to different stimuli during sleep. So perhaps it's a trained response. That's what I think is kind of interesting because, like... Think of it, like if you think about it, like when we're sleeping for the most part, if you don't have narcolepsy, you go and you you go into your room or you go to bed, and you have somewhat of a similar amount of stimuli around you at all times. You might have the same clock, you might have the same sound, you might have the same fan, and so you've somewhat conditioned yourself to sleep within this sleep cave that you've created. But when it comes to narcolepsy these people fall asleep anywhere. And so they may fall asleep in the middle of a bus and they may fall asleep in the middle of a meeting or they may fall asleep anywhere. And so the amount of stimuli that's coming in to them while they're sleeping is much greater than that of individuals that go to sleep in the same spot at the same time every day. And so I wonder, it would be kind of interesting to see if, the ability of the brain to actually respond to stimuli is trainable in the sense that since the narcoleptic patients have have a greater response to the stimuli in the study, it might suggest that they have these pathways trained, and so perhaps you could, in healthy individuals, enhance the ability of the brain to understand and respond to stimuli during sleep by training or being able to expose it to more stimuli uh, during sleep, rather than having the same sleep environment. It's kind of interesting. So like I said, for the narcoleptic patients, it was throughout all phases, they all had very good responses. On the other hand, the healthy participants, uh, they still were responsive to the stimuli or the task, but they showed a notable exception during slow-wave sleep, which is, again, the the deepest stage of of non-REM sleep they're, responsiveness significantly diminished. So the ability to respond to non-real words by frowning or to real words by smiling was was down. So it kind of aligns with our understanding of slow-wave sleep as a phase of somewhat of this profound rest and disconnection. And again, uh, I, I it's worth pointing out that what was interesting about this study design was that the use of the facial muscles is kind of interesting because the facial muscles are somewhat, I mean, they, they still are diminished a bit during sleep, but they're somewhat uh, spared from the typical sleep paralysis, right? Because we need to create, we need to maintain tone of our airways and we need to maintain tone of our facial structure in order to have efficient movement of air during our sleep. And so the fact that they use these facial muscles, I thought was kind of cool. Um, because normally if you want to study muscle activity during sleep, it's kind of tough because you go into paralysis and so you don't have muscle activity. And so, uh, it was kind of cool that they used a, a set of muscles that is somewhat spared from that. Anyways, um, so like I said, uh, what was really groundbreaking again was the, the level of this cognitive integration that was demonstrated amongst the participants. The participants, again, they weren't just reacting to any sound. They were actually differentiating between words and pseudo words. They were making decisions and executing responses. So it's not just like sound response. They actually had to discriminate between what was a word and what was not a word. And so this is a much more complex task, especially in a sleeping human, than, you know, snarl your nose every time you hear a beep because that can be somewhat classically conditioned. But this isn't that. This is, you have to actually be able to think of, okay, this is a real word, this is not a real word. And then you have to decide, was I given a real word? Was I not given a real word? Then you have to remember... What is the response that's necessary for a real world? A real word smile. What is the response for a not real word? Frown. And you have to connect these two things at all times during these trials. So, and again, this is not only are you doing this; this is happening while you're enveloped in the embrace of sleep, if you will. So, the challenge or the the findings actually challenge some of that very fabric, if you will, of our understanding of sleep, and they suggest that. Beneath the the calmness of sleep, a sleeping individual actually lies with a brain that's active, engaged, and in certain windows can actually profoundly connect us to the external world. And I think, again, this is a underutilized um, concept in the fact that I think we can enhance our cognitive abilities profoundly by being able to target some of this, the the, the findings that our brains are indeed actually able to comprehend things while we're sleeping. So it was a pretty fascinating study. I loved it. It's in Nature Neuroscience. It's out now. It's open access because I try to review only open access papers just for the sake that if anyone wants to listen to uh, this and then actually go back and follow up with the paper to read through it and see how the conclusions that I came up with from the, the paper match with those of their own, right? Because my interpretation of the paper might be completely different from uh, someone else's. So this is just sort of my interpretation of the data. And it has a lot of other uh, fancy figures and, and different analysis techniques that they used. But uh, this is sort of the the overview of what I think the paper was showing and how how the authors did it. So, like I said, the paper really challenges that that binary view of sleep and wakefulness. And instead of just two distinct states that we might actually envision them as points of a spectrum, and it's just sort of these sort of sliding scales of of cognitive um, in perception and perception and cognitive abilities. And at various stages of sleep, might offer different levels of connectivity if you were if you would to the external world. So. The heightened response also in participants with narcolepsy opens up some of of the new avenues for research. Like I said, is there unique sleep patterns, uh, a a partial way to explain some of the uh, ability to access certain cognitive behaviors during um, sleep, or is it the fact that they may have a more trained perceptual sensory system in different conditions during sleep. So it's interesting. Again, it also has a philosophical angle to consider. If our brains can process, decide, and respond while we sleep, does what is it what does it say about the nature of consciousness? Of course. Are there layers of it, depths of our awareness that we're only starting to understand? Of course, that's a provocative angle to go at there. And of course, I think like it's somewhat of a groundbreaking study. It doesn't just add a chapter to the, this sort of vast sea of sleep research. I always love papers that present new concepts rather than just sort of beating a, a well, I don't want to say beating a dead horse because that's not right, but but saying um, sort of an add-on or an age-old saying, if you will, but um, just adding another small incremental gain into an already well-known field. It's sort of expanding into this new uh, concept, which I think is really cool. And so there's a lot of things that can be now studied uh, based on this concept that's been laid out. So congratulations to the author, beautiful study, Nature Neuroscience. Now go forth and give yourself some tasks to do while you're sleeping and see if you can actually do them. www.theneuronetwork.org. If you want to see about the research, links to the podcast. Podcast is available on all major podcasts, player. If you again, if you have any studies that you want to review, if you want to review your own study uh, and join, feel free. Uh, send us an email, neuralnetworkcontact at gmail and have a good week. Okay, bye.